I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the program, which this week is part of the Conversations with Translators sub-series from the Hedgehog and the Fox podcast. A few weeks ago, I put up an interview with Anne O'Neill Henry about her book, Mastering the Marketplace, which examines the dawn of the era of the bestseller in 19th century France. One of the main titles we talked about was also one of the century's biggest bestsellers, The Mysteries of Paris by Eugène Sue. This book, published in 150 instalments in the early 1840s, was such a hit that people would queue up for the latest episode. Public readings were held, and it spawned a whole subgenre of mysteries of novels. It was, says critic Peter Brooks, a breathless and lurid tale, and in France, reading it became a truly national experience. But by the 20th century, in the English-speaking world, the book was virtually unread, barely known. There was no good translation of it, and at well over a thousand pages, it probably daunted publishers and translators alike. Then, in 2015, Penguin Classics put out a brand new translation by Carolyn Batensky and Jonathan Loesberg. So after our conversation with Anne O'Neill Henry, I was curious to find out more about the experience of producing this translation. The book is full of underworld slang that even the French readers in the 1840s needed to have explained. How did Carolyn and Jonathan cope with that? And with the book's length? And how did they coordinate their work as a joint effort on such a leviathan? In this interview, I put these questions to one of the pair of translators, Jonathan Losberg, who is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Literature at the American University in Washington, D.C. When I spoke to Jonathan, I began by suggesting that translating Eugène Sue seems to contrast with other items on his CV, such as his interest in Victorian prose writers such as Mill and Newman and his work on recent French theory. As, as a hobby, I read French 19th century fiction and have, as a way of working on my language for years, I knew my co-translator, Carolyn Batensky, through our common work in 19th century literature, we were at a program committee meeting for a conference, and she'd mentioned that she was thinking of doing a translation of, of Sue, and I said, 
gee, I've always loved that novel. I'd love to try translating it. And she said, well, why don't you join me? I, I was a fluent reader of French. I'm a decent speaker of French, but a fluent reader of French. And so it seemed to me like it would be an interesting thing to do. How long ago did you encounter Sue? Was, is, do you go back a long way with him? I think I read Mysteries of Paris for the first time around um, my second sabbatical when I was writing the book on aesthetics and deconstruction. No, I'm sorry. I was writing the first part of the book on a return to aesthetics, and I read it in French. That would have been 1995. And do you remember what impression it made on you? I mean, were, were you coming to it purely analytically, professionally, or were you sort of caught up in the, in the melodrama as a reader yourself? I'm a long-time passionate reader of 19th century melodramas. One of the reasons Carolyn was interested in me working with her was she knew that about me, and therefore she figured I'd be able to catch his tone. I, I know that it's buried in my CV, but you will find an article on 19th century sensation fiction that I wrote in the 1980s. And so I was reading it because I've always loved 19th century melodrama. I mean, I'd been reading Balzac, I'd been reading Dumas. Sunni uh, seemed a natural next step. And you'd been reading French fiction for a long time and, and French theory and, and, and speaking the language, but had you um, tried your hand at translating before you embarked on Sue, or was that, was that a first? Well, in two ways. Um, in, in the book on aesthetics... When I was dealing with Foucault, and I felt that really the translations were, in certain ways, uh, falsifying him, I started doing my own translations. In that book, there are a number of passages where it will say my translation. There are other parts where I complained about American translations, uh, particularly of the post-discipline and punishment period. So you had you had had a brush with translation before. Nonetheless, this is it's a it's I suppose it's one of the Everests, isn't it, of translation, both in terms of its size, which is the obvious factor to anyone, but but also in the range of styles and tones and language and discourse that you've got to grapple with. Well, I'm happy to think it was an Everest. I uh, I would think Proust is a tougher nut to crack and some of the, you know, the modern 20th century people, the difficulties are, are really there on the face of it. In other words, Sue was not, by any stretch of the imagination, a major stylist in French, uh, but he has a lot of different levels of discourse. You know, the criminal slang, but also the, the various ways he has his middle class and lower middle class characters speak, and sometimes in broadly comic scenes that you do have to catch. That was partially the challenge. The other part of the challenge is, and this was why it was interesting to me as someone who likes melodrama, for some reason, and I really don't understand it, in the 19th century, all the English translators, not just of Sue, but of Dumas and of Balzac, translated them into this weird, quaint style. And I wanted to get him out of that and into something that sounded like at least 
um, 19th century melodramatic literature. So that was uh, something that took some work too. I mean, do you have an explanation for why those old translations were so deficient? Was it was there a sort of translation discourse that they all followed, or were they just not very good translators? Or what what do you think was going on? First of all, I have to say, given the speed at which they turned these things out, I don't think they were bad at all. Um, in other words, Carolyn and I took it may have been three years before we delivered a final manuscript to Penguin. We went over it numbers of times. We have the internet with different dictionaries to use. So, you know, finding slang that we didn't know, we could do. And for them to turn out those translations, they had to be, and they seemed to do them in like a year. They had to be going at breakneck speed with no proofreading. Given those constraints, I have to say, I don't think they're bad at all. They are wildly faulty, but... Now, the stylistic thing I do not understand at all. I suppose I could do some more research in it. Maybe that's how they heard the French, but it's hard to believe that. Also, for translating Sue, for translating Dumas... The audience out there was the same audience for reading Wilkie Collins or uh, Mary Braddon. That's that's why those things were coming out that fast. I don't know why they did it that way. I don't know what to say. So once you've got your contract, tell tell me, I'm I'm interested in your working methods. You said it took you three three years, three three and a half years, and you're working in in partnership with with Carolyn Batensky. Tell me how you actually approached translating this book. One of us would do the first draft of a chapter and send it to the other. Uh, The other one would then go through a a pretty, I assume she did the same thing. I know what I did. I would read with her chapter in my hand and the French and imagine how I would do the translation. And then I'd sort of match our sentences together and do rewrites and then send it back to her. In both cases, we mostly accepted 90% of the other person's rewrites. The other 10% would take a one or two times back and forth, and that would be it. There were two or three cases where we battled over the course of the book for how it would come out, and we just put those aside and come back to it. But for the most part, and then you know how we chose it would be you know, there would be periods where one of us would be able to do the first drafts while the other was working on something else. I mean, at that time, Carolyn was, uh, I believe, starting work on another, uh, on articles or another monograph. I was chair of my department. And so, you know, there would be periods where she would be free to turn out the first drafts. And then periods where, It was an odd thing being chair and doing this. Um, For the most part, being chair of a department stops your scholarship pretty much dead in its tracks. But in fact, there you are sitting in your office. You have a meeting at 1.30. It's over at 2. You have a meeting at 3.30. You have a space of time. That space is no good for doing deep scholarship. But it's absolutely fine for opening up the book and starting to translate again. So I could actually do work while I was there. I had a, I assume all chairs do, when I was in my office, an open door 
policy with colleagues and students, but like, so I'd stop, come in, talk to them over about anything, they would leave and then, you know, I could just pick it right up again. So it worked for me at times, uh, and I would send her things and I would just keep on going until she was ready to send stuff back. And that's how it went. Tell me, Jonathan, did you have policy discussions before you began? You clearly must have done about things like how you're going to handle nicknames. But was there a long list or a short list of things that you had to sort of agree as ground rules before you began? Well, okay, I have to go back a little. So most of the translations, if you've read Sue, you clearly have. You know that the slang is completely unreadable, even if you're fluent in French. And Sue gives you footnotes. So most of the translations simply translated the footnotes, which is therefore not giving you a feeling of the things. Carolyn sort of did that and said, I don't know what you're going to do with this. Sending it back to her, I said, okay, here's what I've done. What I've done is sort of translated into, into a slang that you might be able to make out or might not. So I'm also a fan of, of old film noir and crime movies. And, you know, I use some gangster stuff from that. Uh, for some things, I would look on the Internet to find 19th century uh, English equivalents for, say, um, a, a 19th century slang word for judges. That's how I came up with beak. Oh, I didn't know. Uh, you know, the beaks are going to look at this that way. And I sent the translation back to her. Uh, with my uh, uh, overhaul, and she was really happy with that. She said, yes, you've got to really do it that way. Uh, we also agreed that we, we had to translate nicknames. Uh, she had translated them. I played around with them. We played around with all of them, but like she translated the name Schuliner, um, uh, 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 which is actually an odd spelling of Suliner, uh, which means something like stabber, uh, as stabber, and like that didn't sound good to me. So I did a slasher movie, and I translated it as slasher. Although that was the most difficult part, that was fairly straightforward to come to terms with. For others, actually, we did it as they came up, by guessing by God. The back and forth between the couple who keeps the boarding house, that's the, you know, that's the center of some of the story, where she talks like uh, some lower class person out of Backstreet Boys, although not a criminal, just, and he has this weirdly, oddly inflated dialect that's, that's really not ever quite right. Uh, we played around till we got that the way we liked it. And what about the narrative voice? Because we've been talking about particular items of slang vocabulary, but the, the whole of the sort of narrative voice, is that difficult, do you think, to bring over into English? Is that, is that a challenge of a, of a different order? I, at the outset, said I want to make this sound like a 19th century melodrama. Um, and she said, great. And so that was what we aimed to do. It led to local things like I I translated fairly directly when when Sue did a, a direct, direct address to the reader. You know, our reader will think. And and Carolyn at first said, you know, that's not right. They wouldn't do that in um, in nineteenth century novels. And I said, well, I don't know. Uh, I, we know Trollope does, but here it is in 
in Collins. And she said, well, you're right. And then I translated, I remember some sentences as sure as death and taxes. And she said, well, it turns out that Franklin said it, so it's a not anachronistic, but it doesn't sound right to me. And I, you know, I said, you're right. And so we would play, play it back and forth till we got, till we got it right. It's, you know, it's really a lot of those things, a lot of translation, once you've got your goal in mind, isn't in fact overall theory. It's how are we going to make this sentence and this paragraph capture this tone for that goal? Did you ever read it aloud when you'd, um, when you'd done a draft to see if it worked in, in that way? I mean, I was interested in reading about the novel that when it was published originally in the 1840s in France, people would read it aloud, you know, to, to, to a gathering of, of friends or acquaintances. Is it, was it important to you that it, it kind of worked in the mouth as well as on the page? I don't know what Carolyn did. I would read it aloud to myself, uh, only to hear that it's really at the level of that. Sue wrote, as, as did Duma, these odd, long sentences that are not Proustian or Flaubertian, but one clause strung on another, which you can do more clearly in French. I tended to want to keep that length more than Carolyn did, uh, but one of the tests was, could you read the sentence without losing track of it? You know, if that happens in Proust, well, you know, his sentences are designed to lose track of, but that's not true in, in Sue. So I would read it that way. And both her husband and my wife read it over to sort of just say, does it read well? Do I want to turn the pages? And, you know, that's how we manage that. With a three-year project, there must have been moments when it seemed like, you know, you were sort of bogged down, you were, you were halfway to Moscow or you were halfway back from Moscow. Were, were there times when you thought, I'm never, we're never going to actually get to the end of this? Or did you, did you have a, a, a regular quota of output and you, you kept it up through three years? Well, I didn't do a regular quota, but man, I, was, I just felt I could turn out when I was on summer break quite easily a chapter a day, reread it and send it to Carolyn. Um, and she could do the same and we could move that forward. During the school year, when it, you know, it would go more slowly, it would be two or three chapters a week. But you know, you keep doing it and you keep doing it and you keep doing it. With a book that long and two of us at it, what was harder was keeping track of the various drafts so that we had a we had a clean final that we both agreed on, but we managed the system for that too. I never, I, you know, I treated it like climbing a very long staircase. You just do it step by step and, you know, eventually you come to the other end. Now, I should say that three years, so I think we did a draft that we were ready to start working with in, a, in, in two years. And the next year was... Uh, going over it again, um, going over footnotes, going over other things uh, before we finally sent a final draft to the press. And some people really love that part of the process, that final editing process. And other people, I, I think, are probably keen by that stage to be on to something else. What, what's, your, what's your view of it? Well, the first part of it was I was actually horrified by how much there needed to be corrected. Um, <laughs> One of the things about translating, and that's why I said I don't, I, I, I have a certain admiration for one 19th century translator working alone in a year, 
try translating a 19th century novel with this dialogue that goes on and on because they were paid by the line. Uh, it's very easy to drop three lines of dialogue and not even notice it. You know, one of us would pick up what the other had missed, but then I would, you know, look while reading the next thing through, which I did again, you know, with the book next to me, and then again without it just to see that it read. Uh, and when I did it with the book next to me, I would look at 19th century French translations and, and be aghast that they had dropped a couple of lines and said, what are they thinking? And then I realized how it happened. The other thing was, I can't tell you how many times I would read a line and say, I really just don't understand the line of narrative through this paragraph or that dialogue interchange. It, it just doesn't seem quite right. And I look back at the original, I would say this phrase, uh, we haven't quite gotten it yet. And so go back again. So that we both thought we had a pretty finished product and we both thought we didn't. That part was still of importance to me. Then, you know, the last part is the same thing when you're an author of a book. Uh, you get the copy edited stuff back. You're dealing with this thing or that thing. I don't mind it. In fact, I'm grateful for good copy editing. But the work of it is uh, over here you said this and here 100 pages later you have said this. I'm ecstatic for people to catch that, but it's, you know, it's, it's a different kind of uh, project at that point. I also want to ask you, Jonathan, what are the particular resources that you kept going back to that were really useful when you were, when you were facing some difficulty, whether um, online or, or printed resources that you thought um, were especially there helpful? Were, there were two books and then three or four things online that I used regularly. One was a, a Petit Robert, so I could do a friend, I could have a what I think of as a translation from concept to concept in my head without, and, and so when I translated the English, I wasn't translating one little word in another, I was translating the meaning. But you get translations that sound very weird that way, nevertheless. So the next thing was, you know, I had a, a, a massive random house French-English translation that was okay. There was an online um, translation to online translation series that I'd never use in isolation, but they would give you colloquial things. And then um, there's an online slang translator called, I assume after uh, Petit Robert, it's called Bob. Uh, that's very good for slang that's still contemporary. Uh, there are then, um, uh, there's a, a thing called Lexi Logos, which has a whole list of 19th century dictionaries, plus some things like Vautrin's translation of criminal slang. And I use that, and then I would just start doing searches for one after another for some things until I found out, until, particularly with the slang, until I found out how you got to that slang. Uh, because sometimes that would help me with the translation. I could I could invent English slang that sounded like slang and captured the metaphor that was the original basis of the French. 
And of course, often it's in the nature of the slang for the etymology to be unclear, isn't it? So sometimes you're left with a, a choice of interpretations. It's not um, absolutely pinned down where something actually comes from, what it's related to. No, that's right. You add alternatives to guess from. And in any case, it would always be a translation because the, you know the slang words together might suggest why they were thinking about that. But really, only so you just think about American or any slang. You know, why is a judge a beak? I assume if you once you say beak, it's because it's someone like constantly pecking at you to get information. But that's an interpretive guess. Tell me, how did your view of Sue change, if at all, as you as you worked through the book? Because even if you'd read it a couple of times or, or more before you began, having that sort of intimate detail of every you know acquaintance with every line, that, that I think that changes a relationship with an author, doesn't it? Well, this happened very early on for me. As you translate sense to sense in chapters, you suddenly see him putting things in there that are not going to come up hundreds of pages later, and you realize, man, he really was thinking about putting together a narrative. You also see his slip-ups. He puts in a character that he wants to come back to. When he comes back to them, he forgot the exact chronology in which they came in, and you realize they couldn't have predicted that they were going to use him that way. But you you realize that, that you know parts of the novel he really was not even though it was coming out day by day, uh, writing it just as it came up. The, the kind of narrative construction, I'm not going to claim that this is as carefully uh, put together as a, you know, a, a, a thriller written where the end is known, but you can see that he had a very good idea of where he was going and what, I mean, he knew from the beginning who, who Rodolphe was in relationship to Songbird. That it was, you know, that is clear almost from the third chapter. If the first time you read it, even the second time you read it, you don't capture this. Other things that struck me was just things, maybe I was a bad reader. It took me much longer to figure out um, why Songbird was so ashamed. You know, that she was ashamed because she was a prostitute. Then I saw, without suggesting it, how, 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 you know, how he was sort of huffing and puffing to let you know. I once read somewhere that Ernest Hemingway, not my model of a, of a great writer, by the way, learned to write by sometimes copying other people's stories because he would see what they would do. I mean, copying them out in longhand not copying what they did. And I had a little bit of that experience. I could actually learn to see him putting together the narrative. So does that mean your estimation of him went up? I used to think he liked Dumas. Dumas is actually sort of a sloppy narrativist. Count of Monte Cristo is the great exception. He clearly figured that out. But you read The Three Musketeers again, you'll see after the they solved the problem of the diamond studs, certainly, suddenly he's like... He's uh, treading water for two or three chapters till he figures out what he's going to do next. And then he slowly, like, by bits and by gobs, he picks it up and carries you through the end. Sue is much better than that. And, and yes, I did. I had always experienced someone as a, him as a page turner. But, uh, you know, I was impressed by how well he kept sometimes numbers of balls in the air. 
without ending anything until really very far into it. Uh, I was impressed by that. I could also see more clearly, clearly when he dropped balls. I mean, you, you'll see footnotes where he said, but we said, Sue over here says X, and he's clearly forgotten over here his chronology. I don't know how he kept it up sometimes. You say in your introduction, it's the most important work of 19th century French fiction that is virtually unread in English. Do you have the sense, now that it's been out two or three years, that it's beginning to, to gain a foothold, that people are beginning to, to find their way to it and that that picture is beginning to change? Well, there are two parts of it. We knew, and it was part of why Penguin accepted it, that there were people who teach French literature out there that wanted a translation. I quite honestly have to say, I don't know how you would teach it in a class. It's too long, and now I'll say something bad about Sue, and its length doesn't reward close reading so that you would want to give it what you would have to, six weeks of a class. You know, as I can give War and Peace six weeks of my class, but like Sue deserves a couple of weeks, but he's 1,300 pages, you know. So I don't know how they do it. I assume they do excerpts or some form of, I once talked to a colleague who had them, you know, read a novel all through a semester bit by bit or something like that. But we knew they wanted to do that. The second part is, I mean, the book has been selling. It's not making either Carol or I rich, but it's clearly selling and it's getting, and it's getting uh, online reviews. And, it's, and it got reviewed when it appeared in the Washington Post, in the, in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, the foreword was, was in the New York Review of Books. Uh, there was a review in the Times Literary Supplement. I would have been ecstatic to have my academic books reviewed like that. So more people know it exists, yes. I was talking to Jonathan Lausberg about his translation of The Mysteries of Paris, which he co-produced with Carolyn Batensky. It's published by Penguin Classics, and you can find out more about it on their website. If you've enjoyed this programme, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.